Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with Daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. On today's episode, we wonder why the maker of the RAV4 isn't as wealthy as Elon Musk. Learn why price gouging doesn't help preserve supply. Learn how unregulated markets are full of death merchants. And listen to some folks celebrating the violent conflict between Russia and Ukraine. This is Cringe Posts. Hello, friends. Welcome to this episode of the Cringe Posts Podcasts. This is the show where we gather the cringiest political and cultural takes in your feed. We break down where they went wrong, try to challenge some of the underlying assumptions and all that, try to have a laugh along the way as well. Uh, I'm here uh, with my co-host, Britt, and I'm Donald. And before we make fun of other people's posts, we always like to look back at our own past bad takes, make fun of them before we make fun of other people's posts. So we're going to start into that by looking at a bad take from Britt. Before we do that, just a reminder to like and share and subscribe, all that good stuff that helps us out. And if you want to view any of these posts and you're listening to the audio version of this podcast rather than the video version available on YouTube and Odyssey, then you can do so at cringeposts.com where we provide a visual companion to the show where you can see these cringes in all their visual glory. With that all out of the way, let's go ahead and get started and take a look into Brit's past cringe. This one is from December of 2010. Brit writes, You never know what you had until it's gone, but sometimes you never know how much it held you back until it's gone. Um, and there we have little wisdom Brit coming out. Uh, oh, yeah. And <laughs> I mean, uh, something aggressive Brit. I was just going to say something <laughs> tells me that you're trying to communicate something to someone out there without dropping any names. Oh yeah. Or you're trying to get someone to ask real bad. <laughs> I, I have no idea who it was about or anything oh, like that, it. but, but I, I'm sure it was about some girl or something that, <laughs> yeah. uh, something wasn't working out or something. And, uh, I wanted to passively aggress her, or as the cool kids call it, subtweet. Um, yeah. You know, at them that you know we, we something had stopped or whatever. Because 2010, I would have been about 15 or 16. I just like you and I see this a lot with our past posts. We we try and take some common common phrase, and then we try and turn it around a little bit and be like, "Ooh, here's my like deep wisdom on this common everyday thing." So it just reeks of that, which I, I was embarrassed to see it. And then I also just know for a fact, this was me trying to tell someone like, yeah, I'm going to be better off without you now. And so, you know, yeah, you're gone, but, you know, take that. You held me back. What's funny <laughs> is my my grandmother, um, who just passed away, rest in peace, um, she she commented on it. Um, I can't remember exactly what she said at, at the moment, but, but basically like... <laughs> Just, just kind of like acknowledging that, like, yeah, you're you're a youngster, you know. <laughs> stop, stop being so silly. And I always appreciate that, you know. As a, as a young person, you sometimes look at like my parents told me they're like, look, Brit, like at eleven, you're gonna be about thirteen or fourteen here soon, and you're gonna think that we take stupid pills, you know, every day um, when you're thinking about decisions and we give you advice. But just trust me, like we don't take stupid pills. They're just pills of life that have happened over you know thirty, forty years now. And I remember sh like showing up at 14, 15 and they're telling me, hey, don't date that girl or don't go do this or hey, don't maybe this isn't a wise decision. And me thinking like, what do you know? Like, I'm so much smarter. Like, you're so dumb. And it's like, ah, no, people that are older than you, you know, ha have a right to kind of have insight into your life and to speak into it, even if you don't want it. Um, it you know, obviously, I didn't listen enough to prevent eye burners like this post, but... <laughs> I think I turned out okay. I'm so I'm a self-sustaining and and 
uh, adult now with a with a wife in a house. So I think I did okay. Well, so in in some sense, then the post is actually right, you know, because you never mm. you were being held back. You know, it wasn't yeah. until this mysterious person was out of your life. <laughs> And that you then got married and have a successful career. You know what I'm saying? So Yeah, yeah, you know, eight years later years or whatever. Since, yeah, it, it, all of that was hinged on this one relationship that you're better off without. That's That was the catalyst to unlocking full potential Brit. Okay, let's see here. We're going to move to our first uh, post here. And this one is from verified Twitter user Pat Reagan, who tweets... As someone who has never met or even heard of someone who owns a Tesla, I am wondering how come Elon Musk is rich and not, for instance, whoever invented the Toyota Camry? How about whatever boss lady came up with the RAV4? Why doesn't she buy Twitter? Um, I, I, I like this to start because it's the, well, I don't know anyone who, who, has, who has a Tesla. That means that it can't exist, which is just such a funny funny frame of reference to to especially where you and i the area we live you know you drive into like bellevue or you go to the bellevue mall and you cannot go into that parking garage without seeing at least three or four teslas if not more um anytime you're in bellevue and i mean even just on a normal commute into you know gross dingy seattle you'll generally see a a tesla of some kind and obviously there's a particular niche and demographic of people in this region who who like that car and who have the means to afford it in the tech industry and stuff like that but i i guess you know by my measure it would it would more like you know they're cheaper in some instances though you know oh yeah sure sure yeah yeah, they they absolutely can be. I just mean that you know the 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 sample that we view from is going to be biased yes. in the other direction, right? Of course. And and that's more you know what I'm, I'm making fun of here. So it's like, you know from our perspective, it's why isn't Elon Musk double as rich as he is? Um, you know, based <laughs> yeah. on how yeah. often I do see them here. You know, which is just kind of a silly way to to do it. But but the other the other thing is, and, and I don't I don't know for a fact, but um, you know that the Toyota Camry or the Rav Four, you you'd have to. To compare it to "quote unquote" a Tesla, for one thing, you'd have to you'd have to argue the entire line. So, like, the, how come the owner of Toyota isn't that rich? And one, it's like, well, he probably is relative to if you were to just take Elon Musk's wealth from Tesla, and you were to compare it at the right times to the person who. I don't know, created Toyota as a brand, but then also realized that Tesla is hitting a market niche that other people aren't. And Elon Musk, moreover, is obviously investing that wealth in many other ways and has has done that, I mean, did that with PayPal to make Tesla. So it's just a very weird, shallow kind of comparison to say, look, there's one kind of car that I don't see anywhere. How come you know, Elon Musk is so rich from that when I see other kinds of cars everywhere? And it's like, well, there, I mean, there's a lot of reasons that can go into that, but your comparison is just a very weird starting point to begin with. Yeah. What What is kind of um, the underlying argument that I think a lot of people will see that kind of relates to this is, well, you know, it's not the actual billionaire who actually makes these products, right? It's the, it's the whoever designed, as if one person designed the RAV4 or the Toyota Camry. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they're, they're like, why aren't they the rich people, you know? And kind of just before we address that point, like, I want to make the point that the guy, the CEO of Toyota, I think he's like net worth is a billion dollars. Like it's not, it's not, it's not exorbitantly, it's more money than you or I will probably ever see in our lives. But uh, it's not $44 billion. So people were pointing that out in the comments on this. It's like, well, here's the problem. The CEO of Toyota owns a tenth of a percentage of Toyota. Right. (laughs) Elon Musk managed to make Tesla into what it was only giving away about 80% of the company. Elon Musk still owns 20% of Tesla, right? And with Tesla having a market cap of $690 billion or whatever it is now, which is inflated, you know, in my opinion, but regardless, that's what the market's valued it at. His net worth is 20% of that $690 billion. Um, if you, if you, Toyota's market cap's like $300 billion. So if you assemble 20%, right, the equivalent um, of people that own Toyota stock or whatever, they could buy Twitter, right? So the comparison still stands, right? It's just it's just a matter of who owns how much of what company. Toyota was not able to build their company without giving up significant portions of it. Um, they have a city in Japan named after them, so that's pretty cool. But 
Um, yeah, that, that, so that's that's the main point. And this guy could have figured that out with a Google search, right? And that's what's so like frustrating about these type of posts is like they try and make some like grand economic point that's supposed to like cut to the truth of what's wrong in our society. And it's like, dude, if you just Googled like, how rich is, you know, the CEO of of Toyota and how much does he own of it? You would have figured out why, you know, Elon Musk can afford Twitter and the Toyota guy can't. The other aspect that I want to address in it that I kind of talked about earlier though is like people will talk about like, well, it's the labor that built these products, you know. Um I think we had another post where it's like, oh, I think it was with Apple. Someone would have come along and made it eventually. It's like, well, they didn't. So, Steve Jobs came along and made Apple. Without Steve Jobs, Apple doesn't exist. Without Elon Musk willing to put up the $400 million he made from PayPal, literally all of it. Elon Musk went from $400 million in net worth to zero because he rolled it all into Tesla um, after he sold PayPal. He took that risk, a $400 million risk, and was able to keep Tesla, basically all of his ownership, that 20%. And without him doing that, it wouldn't be possible for Tesla to exist. And the world is infinitely better, right, from from Elon Musk and Tesla existing. I liked his... um, reply to uh, Bill Gates uh, when Bill Gates was wanting to like talk about whatever. Um, and he's like, hey, like, are you still shorting my company, right? Are you still betting against my company? And Bill Gates is like, well, yeah, unfortunately, I haven't closed out my position. And Elon Musk is like, he's like, hey, look, I can't take your, you wanting to talk about climate change seriously until you actually, you know, bet on the company that's doing the most to solve it, which is true, right? Elon Musk's company is, if if you believe in all of the narratives about climate change that there is, um, even if you only believe in like sustainability, right? Like I want to have a more sustainable, uh, you know, infrastructure and, 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 and I want the vehicles that I drive to consume more cons- uh, sustainably. Um, Elon Musk and Tesla are doing the best job out there out of all those. And so it just really, I loved it because it revealed like, it it revealed uh, Bill Gates obviously is out there to make money. He's not, he's not the great philanthropist that you would necessarily think. Um, I don't know how I got sidetracked on that, but all that to say, the world is great, (laughs) better off because of Tesla. Not one person invented a Tesla or the Model 3. It took teams of hundreds, thousands of people. But the only reason those hundreds and thousands of people were able to work on a Tesla was because Elon Musk assembled the capital and bet on it, right? He, if, if, if at the end of the day, a Tesla, you know, drove out of the, the factory and it blew up because it wasn't able to work, the person that would have $0 in their bank account is Elon Musk. And the people that would have some sort of salary in their bank account would be the people that worked on it, right? So who's taking the risk at that point? We all know who it is. Yeah. I- <clears throat> and you know the 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 sort of the question about you know that that this asks you know the the car that I see everywhere you know the the sort of market that is the the maybe less less expensive to initially buy but everywhere cars the Toyota Camrys the Rav4s why is that you know that one person who designed them not rich or whatever unlike Elon or unlike Elon Musk and and I like <clears throat> how you know when you were talking about the you know the difference in the owner of Toyota only having that tenth of a percent uh or is that right a tenth of a stock yeah, or a so a tenth of a percent um, yeah a tenth of a percent um versus you know Elon having that 20 and and it makes me think about how when people assume see like large presences of bigger businesses um they often just assume it's all pure revenue and all pure uh, profit that's being generated from all these different factors, and it, and oftentimes the reason why companies that are big and superfluous in a market are able to expand is because they've generated enough of a profit to do so. But what is oftentimes not accounted for are the operating costs, the expansion costs, and so you think about something like a Toyota Camry, and yeah, like if those you know if you have ten on the ten of those on the market to every one Tesla it doesn't mean that they're making 10 times as much as that Tesla, right? Because one, labor and parts and all that sort of, and, and the operating costs and factories needed to operate to produce 10 times as many cars or whatever costs that money. And sure, everything is done in order to generate a profit, but there's, you know, there's there's a rate of return. It's not just, a, a, you know, a 10 to 1 <clears throat> they're making 10 times more than Tesla is. Also, your your profit margins are going to be different. Um, but but people like this often forget about the level of investment that needs to be sunk into something like this um, in order for a, a bigger scale to happen. So it's like, yeah, you might see, um, like I think a great example would be, you know, it's like you might see 
the iPhone more frequently than you do say a like a really high end um I don't know like designer phone or something like that right but that alone does not make mean the fact that Apple is you know performing outperforming this one luxury phone 10 to 1 if the luxury phone is hitting a very specific niche market that is willing to pay 10 times of what it's worth you know if you think about like gaming phones there are some really insane mm. gaming phones out there for some reason that have like liquid coolers built-in fans all these in crazy accessories meant for gaming on your phone and it's like the 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 costs on those are are wild expensive and crazy due to the components and things like that but <clears throat> they're hitting a market that is necessarily not aimed to be the mass market of like another android phone or an iphone or something like that and so hello it is ryan and i was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com i looked over at the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing they were also playing chumba casino coincidence i think not everybody's loving having fun with it chumba casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere even at thirty thousand feet so sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus that's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus you know it's like i've seen you know 10 iphone se's to one rog gaming phone or something like that that must mean that the iPhone SEs are bringing in more profit. And, and I'm, not, I'm not using this as an example to say, but yeah. in fact, the ROG makes more. I have no idea. I, I don't think so. But using that as an illustration of, you know, of something where, you, you know, the, the ways that you can appeal to different markets and to different consumers and values, uh, you're not always necessarily going for the superfluous. Now, you know, in, in best case scenario for Elon Musk, everyone's driving a Tesla. And I think that's part of the expansion with like the the Model Three and stuff, trying to make more affordable versions. But especially the the initial runs of Teslas were not designed to compete with the Rav Four or the Toyota Camry. Um, and so, being profitable for you know a, a Tesla Model X looks a lot different than being profitable for a Rav Four. And so, relative to their different markets, you can see ten times as many Rav Fours as you do Model Xs, and the Model Xs still can be outperforming their benchmarks and making more of a profit than the Rav Fours because it's not an equal, you know, it's not an equal distribution. You're not just trying to go for, and, and I think this is a common mistake of people who have never worked in sales or don't own a business or don't have any kind of marketing experience, where you don't realize that. You're not always going for the most people all the time everywhere. Sometimes you just want to be... That's a strategy. Yeah, yeah, right. That is a strategy, but it's not the only strategy. And it's definitely not the strategy of Tesla in the you know in their initial launch. Uh, in, in more and more it is. But um, so, to, so to, to act as though, you know, I see more of this thing than I do that. How is this person rich and the other's not? Um, even if it only had to do with the auto industry, which I think is a very shallow level understanding of Elon Musk and, and what he's done, um, even then you you just you're lacking a complete an analysis uh, from from the marketing perspective there. Yeah, and that's that that is the beauty of firms competing for people's business, right? Because they're you know if you see like a four quadrant, you you see this a lot in market analysis. Like you know at the very top right, there's like the cheapest product at the highest quality, right? Which that just that can exist in some cases, but like you usually don't exist up there by yourself for very long unless you have some crazy trade secret. And everyone kind of like moves around in that quadrant based on things. And, and depending on what your preference is, right? Like you can, if you have higher desire for quality, you know, you'll go, you'll fall into the, you know, the top left quadrant. If you have lower, um, you know, desire for quality, you know, you're going to be in a different space. And like, I think about like Walmart, right? Like people complain about Walmart and like, oh, like it, it but it's like, hey, that serves a really huge need. And people will think that like, oh, the executives at Walmart, like how dare they be so selfish that they don't pay their employees, you know, a, a living wage or whatever. And it's like, okay, look at Walmart, go Google right now, Walmart's net profit margin. Their annual net profit margin is one point, I think, four percent or something like that. It's it's under two percent. It's dismally small. Meaning, after all the money is spent in a year, after you know the five hundred and fifty billion dollars of 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 uh, goods are sold, they walk away with one and a half percent in net profit. Now, now people would, if you ask a person like, do you think Walmart could afford to pay their employees one extra dollar per hour? 
And everyone would be like, oh, of course they can. It's like, no, they quite literally can't because if they pay their employees $1 extra per hour, every single one of them, all 2.5 million or whatever that they have, they literally would not have any profit. They'd be negative profit every year. And that's Walmart's business strategy, right? Is that it's, hey, I'm going to sell a huge volume amount of of, of goods and services at very cheap prices and the service at our stores is gonna be terrible and our stores aren't gonna look pretty. Everything's gonna be blue and with crappy fluorescent lighting and you know they, it's, it's just gonna be big in bulk and everything like that. But the people that don't want to go pay a premium price at Whole Foods or something like that are able to get food that's decent and edible at a really good price. And the trade-off is that is that you also have people that are required to work there um, or not required, but people that work there are not required as much of them to do it, but they also aren't paid that much, right? Because the amount of service for them is not required to be very high. Um, and so that's the beauty of the market, right? You have you have the to- the people creating Toyota Camrys for people that want a budget car, and you have the you know the Model S Tesla that someone can drop one hundred fifty thousand dollars on and feel awesome about themselves, and everyone can live the way that they want. Like let's just leave everyone alone and let let the market sort it out. And I guarantee you, it will it will come to a a decision that makes you happy because it only works for people if they make you happy. Yeah. Are agreed. Um, <clears throat> our next post here uh, comes from our favorite anti-capitalist Instagram post who uh, provides this caption of a tweet, which reads the idea that communism won't work because of human greed is absolutely hilarious. What naive hippie fantasy do you think an unregulated free market is then? <laughs> there are those among us who sell death when afforded the opportunity. Yeah, and and you know what the great thing is? Um you're free to not buy death. And yeah, someone might unfortunately buy death and that would suck and then no one would ever buy that person's death product ever again. Now, take that and compare it with a government mandated lockdown that legislated death well not even legislated legislated is too generous a word because legislated implies that your elected representatives got together and actually voted on a bill that was signed into congress sorry sorry our overlords dictated that we had to stay locked down in our houses that hospitals were not allowed to take more than x number of patients depending on the size you know put off cancer screenings for people and sentenced people to death quite literally with no voluntary choice in the matter. That is the the reality of communism. When when government controls prices, when they control every facet of every industry, when they own the means of production and they own the price of production, that's what you get in every corner of your lives. The free market, unregulated, yeah, you're going to get some bad things in there. But that's, you know, that that is no different than what we have right now in our semi-corporate market um the only difference is that the the you know the death salesmen are are not only in the government but promoted by the government and <laughs> often uh you know you have to they give it. non-competes to anyone who's trying to sell life to you because that you know that hasn't been fda approved <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's a good point yeah i um i thought of two things when i saw this one the first was that and you and i've talked about before but that communism like it only ever scales up to maybe 10, 20 people, right? Like, like it works in the family, that concept of, you know, from each according to his ability to each according to his need, that works in a family. That's how a good family functions, right? Uh, because there's an end goal and everything. Um, and maybe that works up to about 20 members in a family, um, which would be wild. That'd be a wild-sized family, but awesome at the same time. Scale that up to the national level, you know, 300 million people in the United States, it would still only work good for about 10 or 20 people, right? Like the people that control what prices go where and all that stuff. Um, Because at the end of the day, even if, even if you, I don't even like the concept of like communism doesn't work because of human greed. Like you could even remove that as a, as a factor in it. And communism just doesn't work because there's not a single person or group of people that can predict and be an expert in everything in in a market economy, right? You can't actually control, uh, have enough knowledge to control uh, the prices of things, and I've talked about this example before. But you know, my my dad used to uh, have when he was flying for Alaska Airlines, they would fly to uh, to Russia, and uh, like because this is during when the Soviet Union was still going on, and because of all these different mandates, like when you'd show up and the government said, "Hey, you can only do this," or they would put a certain tax on a certain type of vegetable, 
Um, like they would show up and the only thing they could eat was tomatoes, right? Um, they also had stuff, he just told me the story the other day, but basically they banned some sort of compound or they heavily taxed some sort of compound that was part of like antifreeze for uh, like getting stuff off of your windshield or for planes, getting it off, getting the wings to stop freezing, which is pretty important in Russia. So anyways, they banned that or they taxed it or whatever. So there was a shortage of it in Russia. So so what the, the, um, the mechanic that they had to fly over from the US to take care of the planes did was he literally got Russian vodka because that was not taxed and he poured that all over over the wings to unfreeze them. He got fired because uh, that's obviously not, I, I wouldn't feel good about flying on a plane that had been treated <laughs> with, with Russian vodka. But that's what happens in a communism uh, run society where people are trying to control all the different things is you get these crazy externalities and crazy outcomes because the only way for a system to balance itself is for it to naturally happen. When you start intervening and kicking out the natural flow of it, that's when you get these really weird things where the only thing to eat is tomatoes. Yeah, and and I mean, you know, if even like you said, if you take if you take human greed out of the equation, there's still not a a good measure and balance of a, a society that would increase and grow upward and 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 accommodate for any kind of innovation because um <clears throat> you know, the the greed of humans in many ways is what spurs us to to move forward in in many regards because you know, you want to quote unquote selfishly look out for your own family and you want to improve their situation. You want to do better for them. And so you go out and you, you collect more, uh, you know, you, you create more bread for the world. And now that there's more bread, not only can you and your family eat more, uh, because you've sold that bread, but other people have access to more bread in general. Um, it's, it's not even, you know, it's not even a matter of of human greed being just this this necessary evil that gets utilized is that what we can I, I would say you know there is a level of greed that is just inherently sort of this vice of greed but but the inclination towards quote unquote selfishness isn't always this e this intrinsic evil of I'm gonna be selfish to the point of hurting another person selfishness often is the driver that that you can use to to better yourself and society around you as a result of it. Um, selfishness often is what causes competition, which can be the the, the you know act the spur that keeps technology going. I, I I liked what I think Elon Musk said the other day, where you know he's like like technology technology doesn't just get better. You actually yeah. have to have people working really hard and figuring that out, right? And, you know, if you got rid of the idea of greed or whatever, and you provide no actual incentives, um, you know, you can be the, the nicest person in the world, but you still don't necessarily have that drive to, to, to produce that innovation, to build on top of what already exists, um, unless the government is, you know, telling you to do that, at which point you then, you know, then you've taken out greed and you've instead replaced it with this absolutely tyrannical government that grinds its citizens down to the bone and to the to their lives and you've taken out free will from the equation because you know if it's a matter of removing greed but you still need these technological improvements and you still need this hard work and labor the only way you really get it is through uh is through a direct command or edict at which point someone else runs everyone's lives and there is literally no freedom and no autonomy from a person. So that's not to say that, you know, the vice of greed or selfishness is good, but there's an aspect of selfishness that gets lumped in with sort of the, the vice of it um, that I think is necessary to, to spur people on in the same way that like you shouldn't live your life in a, in a state of fear, but like fear can be a healthy motivator to better yourself and improve your situation as well. Sure. And I, I take issue, I guess, with the term for, for at least like free markets and entrepreneurs and, and producers, I think is probably the best word to put it, being greedy. Like, it's not really, I don't, I, I know a lot of entrepreneurs having been in the space and owned my own business and had a startup and stuff like that and met a lot of them. And they are not motivated by greed. They are motivated by like money, but it's from the perspective of like, wow, like if I can create this much value for people, like then I'll be rich. And like the money is a signal that like I've created value because at the end of the day, that's what that that's why people love 
doing like manual labor and things like that, like on their days off and stuff. Like I know at the beginning, you don't necessarily want to do manual labor, but when you do manual labor and you look back, you know, whether you're re-drywalling a room or something like that, and you look inside, you're like, oh, wow, like I did that. Value came out of my hands and I can tangibly see it around me in place. And that's what motivates producers, like like Elon Musk, like Bill Gates, like any of these guys. What motivates them is it could be the value and the money is just a signal to show that they're they're doing it. That means people value what they're doing and there's more of things for people to go around. The last sentence is the one that makes me, it, it just reminds me of like any argument against uh, anarchism or free markets, which is essentially the argument goes, well, if you let a free market happen, you know, the worst case scenario is that we have what we have today. You know, like today, yep. we literally we literally have, you've got these big, fat, military, industrial complex companies like Raytheon that will literally lobby, spend hundreds of millions of dollars lobbying for people to sell us wars. Wars and death on poor countries with innocent people in them. You know, it's funny to me that the... Uh, you know, we, we got out of Afghanistan, we ended the war there, you know, it's basically boom, military industrial complex lost $60 billion in, uh, in, in market revenue. And then, and then coincidentally, you know, six, seven months later, here we are, and uh, we've got a $40 billion spending bill to send weapons to Ukraine on top of the, you know, about $20 billion we spent earlier. It's like, oh, you know, that, that, those hundreds of millions of dollars that are being paid to the lobbyists to push on the, our, our elected representatives uh, is is really, you know, it, it was just a way for them to reallocate the budget to to Ukraine. So they get their pound of flush no matter what. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, the only difference is in a free market, people can actually say, eh, I don't think we're going to, you know, you, you, you haven't had that $40 billion of money taken from you at that point. That you have to choose to give it to Raytheon. And I think given the choice, most people probably wouldn't give their money to Raytheon because, you know, what good is it for, for me to spend, you know, $5 million on a missile that's going to go blow up some poor kid in Yemen? Doesn't make any sense. I don't know, man. Not you money well spent. That. It sounds like you're uh, apologizing for Putin there. It sounds like you're, you know, oh, an anti-American, a traitor, treasonous. I'm a traitor. Yeah. Okay. I got to get the little red anti-Jew stamp too. That's on the, <laughs> yeah, Jew hater. Because yeah. I don't want to defend. I don't want to defend Israel. <laughs> yeah, you and you and Thomas Massey together. Perfect. Okay. Uh, these this next series of tweets uh, comes from a thread started by um, Hannah Cox, who is the other half of Based Liberty. We had uh, Brad Palumbo on the show, and uh, maybe we can get Hannah on uh, sometime as well, because she's also pretty great. Uh, so she tweets out, Price gouging is a good thing, actually. It ensures goods are not hoarded by a few people during shortages and instead allocated to those who need them most. For the love of God, learn just a little, econ. And there's two replies here to this. One reading, yeah, no, not how that works. Price gouging makes something more difficult for someone like me to get it. <laughs> and a follow-up reply, in Australia, supermarkets just limited sales per customer of certain items, as well as cracked down on people hoarding. But I guess that's too draconian for these libertarians. And I, I guess I have two, two thoughts initially <clears throat> the the first on the latter one there, which is to say, I'm I'm actually not opposed to a store limiting the rations if they so choose, right? Like if a store wants to say customers can only buy two packages of toilet paper per, like that's fine. I I think that ultimately that doesn't distribute quite in the right ways necessarily because you never know. Like you know, if it's me buying uh, toilet paper because I think there's going to be a shortage. Uh, and it's myself and my wife in this house and we don't have any kids, that's one thing. And if I'm trying to buy like eight of them, price gouging actually prevents me from wanting to sink my costs into buying eight right now, especially if they do a, you know, a price stack of the more you buy, the more expensive it gets, which I think some of the places do. But regardless, if it's like, wow, it costs me a lot more to get some of this 
item that is in short supply, then I'm only going to get as much as I really do need or can value to afford. Um, and that's, you know, so maybe I only buy two in that case. And they'll say, well, in the supermarket example, you can also only buy two. The store just limits it. But now imagine I have four kids and going through two packages like that is going to last me maybe a week and that's it, you know, cause they're, they're all newborns. Um, th- then I'm, you know, in the scenario where I really need that thing, I actually have access to it. It's going to cost me more, but that's the, the price of my circumstance and the situation I'm in. But I have the ability to get access to that thing versus a store policy where if I can only buy two, then great. I have to run around to another store, hope that they also have the, you know, some in stock and try to find it there. And so, you know, as far as in Australia, supermarkets just limited sales. I That's fine. Like, sure, let stores do that in the U.S. if they want to. I don't think that that often is the best way to distribute. But if that's their, you know, their their attempt to fight, you know, higher prices and price, price gouging, sure, that, that's fine. Just don't institute it on a national level because then then you end up with the, the the same problem of everyone just going around buying um, and then people not having access to the greater number when they actually need that. Because like we were talking about in the previous communism example, it's impossible for any single entity to know and plan that economy and know what people need and to be able to set those exact quantities in perfect. So it might sound reasonable for you to limit, you know, the number of carton of eggs you can buy to, to three cartons per customer. That might sound reasonable to you, but you don't know what the needs are of a particular family or of a, some someone's life. Uh, that may be not nearly enough for them. Who, you know, again, that, that's not for us to know. And uh, at least in a price gouging scenario, it it does cost more, but the the availability is there. You have something versus nothing. Did I ever tell you about my shredded money thing that I did? No. Okay, so 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 the U.S. Um, the U- United States Mint back in 2016 until 2017, and I'll tell you why I know that. Um, they used to offer you could buy bags of shredded money because the U.S. Mint would shred money that they didn't want. Like, oh yeah, see how crazy that is. That that's a whole nother tangent. Uh, but they would literally shred money that they didn't want. Um, just to control the supply. Um, but And they would sell it on their site for like $15 or something like that. And I was working at a company and we were doing this promotion where basically like um, to like get a customer's attention, I would ship them a box of shredded money with a note inside that says, hey, this is about $10,000 in shredded currency. This is how much you're wasting on you know whatever service. We can save you this much per year. Um, and it worked kind of well. But one of the things I realized was that the U.S. Uh, Mint was selling these for $15, but you could also sell it on eBay and Amazon for $40, $50 a piece. <laughs> and so what I did was I created an Amazon listing. I created an Amazon listing for $50 for a shredded bag of money, and people would buy it on there, and then I would go to the United States Mint website, purchase it on there. The United States Mint would pay for the shipping to send it to the, the person that had bought it. I actually sold about, I sold, I sold about $1,000 worth of it to someone in Europe through this process. Um, so I made a lot of money doing that, which was awesome. Um, but someone, someone, someone ratted me out. Right. And so, so my incentive for reselling this stuff for price gouging people with it, uh, was, it, it was dependent on people one, not knowing they could get it from the United States mint. And then two people were actually willing to pay $50 for it. So someone ratted me out. I don't know who it was, but someone ratted me out. So they raised the price to my price on Amazon at the United States Mint. So I couldn't, basically there's no incentive for me to do it anymore. Right. Right. Um, I, I then raised my price again. They raised their price again. And then eventually they just shut it down, uh, which is, you can't buy shredded currency on their site anymore, which is hilarious. I like, I feel like I want to take credit for that, but maybe it was a lot of other people doing that too. (laughs) All that long story to say, the way you get rid of price price gouging, which when I when I say price gouging, what I mean is like you have one person that goes and buys, you know, a thousand of the hand sanitizer bottles, right, and tries to go and sell them for fifty dollars a piece. The way you get rid of that is you raise prices to the point where someone is not incentivized to buy tons of them. They're only incentivized to buy what they need. And this first person who wrote price gouging makes something more difficult for someone like me to get it. That's the exact point. If you don't need it. You shouldn't get it. That that's what price gouging does. It makes sure that you don't give what you want, but if you really do need it, there at least it will be available for you to get it, right? Um, and we've talked about like with COVID. You know, I had COVID, and there's a shortage of monoclonal antibodies, and some companies had like kept a stock in reserve 
But it's like, hey, because there's thousands of people that want this monoclonal antibody treatment, like we have to upcharge the price to $10,000 a dose. So that way the people that really do need it can get it. And I felt good because I was like, hey, man, if I'm on my deathbed, at least someone who's going to, you know, if, if I'm on my deathbed from COVID and I need this treatment, I will figure out how to get $10,000 to, to get the monoclonal antibody treatment. I can't get the monoclonal antibody treatment if it's been used on people that don't need it, though. And that's uh, that's where price... I don't like the word price gouging. It's it's just supply and demand economics, essentially. But I like supply and demand. I'm fine if an Australian supermarket of their own free will chooses to make a price a certain way. I think that's counterintuitive to their actual goals, which is for it to be more evenly distributed. If they wanted to actually distribute it well, they would raise the prices, uh, and then the people that actually need it would would buy it. Uh, the people that don't need it would not buy it and not hoard it. That's how you get rid of hoarding. And and when you think about <clears throat> something being in a shortage like that, um, often one of the really quick sort of critiques is, you know, well, what about the the poorest in society who now will not be able to afford uh, like water bottles or toilet paper or something like that? But the the thing that's that's nice um, about generally the U.S. in particular is that we actually have a pretty generous population. And when there are shortages going around like this, usually you will see a lot of churches or a lot of uh, nonprofit organizations band together to start providing these supplies for people in low socioeconomic statuses. And when you have price gouging um, of some kind, well, then people with the monetary resource, because they don't have access to the resource that is in shortage, can donate, and they often do, to these charities, and the charities and the churches that have cash on hand have access, albeit at a higher price, but they have access to the limited resource. Now, if you don't have price gouging in some way, shape, or form, then that scarce resource becomes scarce even to charities who want to aggregate, you know, general value in currency, and now they cannot provide that for poor people, because the resource itself, which is scarce, has been bought up and hoarded by people who are worried about the shortage. So if you're actually worried about providing sustainable ways for supplies which are in shortage to get to the, the most uh, socially or, uh, socioeconomically poor, uh, the best way that you can do that is by price gouging so that there's an availability. And then that availability gets taken advantage of through charities and generous people and, and you know, because that's the other thing is it, it more and more in this day and age, I've seen even less like official organizations and more generous benefactors or wealthy, you know, YouTubers of all people, you know, doing these kinds of things where they're like, look, I can I can get clout by setting up stations to help people out. I can do good. I can do active good by buying up a bunch of this really expensive short product and then giving it away to people who really need it. Um, and I think, I mean, I think that you see this exact kind of thing um, in, in you know, flood scenarios where the, the, the supply that's in shortage there usually is, you know, a place to stay or safe shelter of some kind. And places open up to provide that for people who don't have it. And then it's like, guess what? The prices in a hotel are going to go up because they don't want people out of town taking up that space. But then all the local you know, areas that see the, the people whose homes have been destroyed or people who are on the streets, they open up shelters for the people who need it to be able to come in. And so yeah. that's just another example of, of a, a resource being in short supply and price gouging being a good thing because then you actually open up more physical space at a higher price, uh, but you create it so that the people who need it the most can have access to it. And that's like that hotel example is like Tom Woods uh, example, which is like if the price was, you know, if you could get a hotel room for $80 a piece or whatever, like the chance that a family of four might get two rooms is maybe pretty high, right? Because they've got $160 to spend on it. They're taking up two rooms, even though they really only need one room. But if the hotel says, hey, we're going to raise prices to 150 bucks, like a room, we're going to almost double them. Um, then that family is going to figure out, hey, like we want a room but we're going to make do like we can make do with one room. And that means that there's another open room for another family, right? That the, the resources are more allocated in a way that makes sense because pricing is just a signal. It's just a way to say, Hey, goods need to flow from this place to that place. Uh, and without that signal, there's no incentive for goods to get there. And then there's no incentive for people to spend other uh, resources they have more wisely. So 
and that's pre- like I was trying to get at. It's precisely the point. If you can't, if it, it is price gouging is supposed to make that's a function of the the of, of the feature. You're supposed to make it more difficult for someone to get it. That's the whole point. So that way everyone can get what they need. Well, and then and then let's let's just to clarify even further, the price gouging itself can make it more difficult, but the scarcity is what has initially made yes. it more difficult, right? It's already like, difficult. Exactly. Yeah, it's not like the price gouging happens out of nowhere. There, there is some reason. There is some scarcity, some shortage, some imbalance of price or of supply and demand that has created difficulty in getting it. And price gouging makes it more difficult for people to hoard. Uh, ironically, because people view it as hoarding, but price gouging actually makes it so that it the resource is available to distribute at all. Okay, uh, moving on to <clears throat> let's see. Are these next two are the Let's see here. Are they are they related or they're, they're kind of related? Yeah. Cool. Cool. Okay. So I'll but I'll I'll read them separate. Is that how ideally yeah. we'll do them? Okay. Great. So this this post comes from um, Adam uh, Kinzinger, who is of course uh, Warhawk number one, and I believe his uh rep his he's either currently not a representative or he won't be because like his I think his district got eaten up or absorbed in in the re you know the the population votes or something like that but he was a he was a very war hockey republican and um kind of in the liz cheney wing of the republican party so he quote treats quote retweets uh dmitry polyansky uh who uh polyansky tweets good occasion to celebrate but still a lot for us to do to denazify nazi ukraine um and they're talking about the AIDS, uh, the Azov uh, surrender. And uh, Kinzinger um, quote retweets that saying, coincidentally, I'm celebrating the 27,000 dead Russian soldiers and a baker's dozen dead generals. How embarrassing for you. Hashtag Slava Ukraine. Ugh. It's it's kind of a gross tweet, but the the, the thing that I, um, that, that, that really strikes me is how the Warhawk Party in the U.S. the the have the, the sort of the the military industrial complex on the one hand have been telling us all this time about how Russia is our geopolitical threat, how Russia is the great evil that we must take on, and we cannot, you know, we have to send forty billion dollars worth of weapons and arms and supply. Well, we actually don't know where it's going, right? We have to spend forty four billion dollars to Ukraine, and if we if you want to you know, keep track of how it's being spent. You're a Russian asset, I guess. Um, we're sending all this to them to stop this this behemoth Russia. And then also, on the other hand, huh, they can't do anything right. 27,000 dead soldiers and a, yeah. 13 bay deserts, bacon generals, boo-hoo, we're, we're so much. I'm like, which one is it, you guys? Like, are, are, are they an absolute disgrace and Ukraine is winning the war? Or are they the great what, evil of, that the West needs to contend with? I, it seems like a very convenient narrative to shift depending on how they want to rally their base at a given moment. Yeah. And just to be clear for everyone, right. We, we, you and I don't necessarily really like the Russians invading and killing innocent Ukrainians either. And I, I think what was striking about this, this exchange was it's, these are two government officials and they're literally the, they're two sides of the same coin, right? Like you've got, you've got Dimitri here, like they don't care that there are Nazis in in Ukraine. If the if the Nazi Party was the, was you know the Azov Battalion and the coup that happened in 2014 was a coup that they put in place, they'd be totally fine with everything going on. The only reason they don't like it is because it's it's a group that's against them, right, and threatens their their national sovereignty. Um, which I guess there's some point to it, right? Like if if they install the Nazi regime down in Mexico, we'd be pretty upset too. But regardless, it's it's just propaganda. That's what it is. And then you've got Adam Kinzinger, who like, it's like, oh, I'm so much better than the Russians, but even comes out with an even more grotesque tweet, celebrating the death of 20, 27,000 Russian soldiers that probably don't want to be in Ukraine, right? Like that's the, the people that the people that get hurt by war are usually the people that had nothing to do with it and if given their own choice would live peacefully with the people that they're going to go kill, right? Um, given that they're not indoctrinated or anything like that. And I can't help but think that, a major- I mean, I, from what I understand, there's a pretty large public sentiment against the war in Ukraine 
uh, in Russia. And so I can't help but think that, you know, most of those Russian soldiers probably don't want to be there either. So I don't know, man. It's like, I, yeah, I don't like any country doing what they're doing, but I'm not going to celebrate innocent people or people that are like essentially slaves, right? They'd be conscripted into the Russian military service and forced to go to a foreign country and die. I'm not going to celebrate that. I guess I'd be okay with maybe the generals in some ways because, you know, those guys try and push for war and they're very political. I, I wouldn't be, uh, I'm not going to say that. But um, there's a lot of people on both sides uh, that I think should be tried for war crimes. Everyone from, you know, George W. Bush to Obama to Joe Biden to Putin, they all deserve to be tried for war crimes and probably hung or put in jail for life uh, with a bunch of people that don't like them. And that's what struck me about this whole thing. It's like, Every political group, whether they're in Russia or they're here in the United States, they all sound the same if you take a step back and look at them. They all are advocating for war. They're all advocating for war that funds the, you know, their friends and consolidates their power and distracts from whatever problems are going on at home. They're all part of the same coin. And so when you're looking at and condemning things in Russia, uh, you probably ought to look at our politicians as well and realize they're no better than than the folks over there. In a lot of ways, America is the empire, right? We are the stormtroopers that go to the foreign planet or the foreign country and send innocent soldiers down that kill other innocent people and then uh, have them come back with blown off legs and things like that. Like we, we are the great evil. And I think America has a lot of reckoning to do with that. Um, and it's just, I don't know. I, I had some hope, you know, with the uh, Republicans. And I guess Adam Kinzinger was never a, a Trump Republican, I guess. But you know, no. one of the things that came out of it was like, oh, like Trump never started new wars. Like that was like a, a big talking point for supporting him. Um, but with this whole Ukraine thing and, you know, this next lady we're going to read, she, she's a Republican person as well. Um, it's just it's just crazy how quickly our memory fades uh, about how much we liked that Trump was not not a warmonger. Um, now we're supporting there's some great evil for us to go send people to die for. Right. Yeah, let's let's move to this next one since yeah. it is pretty related in, in this vein and we'll sort of the natural progression of the conversation will flow from it. So this uh this lady replies to that tweet saying You go, guys. Since Great Britain and the US turned the tide of World War II with all their hero soldiers, Zelensky <laughs> and his nation of pride is keeping Third World War at bay. I salute all of Ukraine. And those nations, keeping them going with military hardware and supplies. And I, I, I love this idea. Zelensky is keeping the Third World War at bay. Really? Is that why he was at one point seeking a military ceasefire with Putin? But now after the $40 billion of supplies that the U.S. is sending, that I should say this new payment of $40 billion supplies that the U.S. is sending to Ukraine... Uh, he has now changed positions and has said, no, we will not be looking for any sort of peaceful resolution with uh, Putin. There will be no ceasefire. Like, how how do you think that's helping keep the Third World War at bay? How How is, you know, nations keeping them going with military hardware and supplies? That's what it's literally doing. It's keeping the conflict going. You know, I was thinking about this this morning, about how you know, I may have some problems with the idea um, that St. Augustine uh, wrote about with just war theory. But one of the tenets of just war theory is this idea that the war has to be winnable for it to be just, right? And, mm. uh, you know, whether or not you want to consider this winnable for Ukraine or Russia or whomever, the, 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 the basic idea there, I think, is that you shouldn't be engaging in a conflict if it's going to just be a bunch of bloodshed and violence, even if you are ethically justified to, you know, you're not in the wrong here. If you have no chance of changing anything, all you're doing is causing needless harm and bloodshed and violence and those sorts of things. And that's one of the tenets of this just war theory. And so even in this, this system, which I, you know, I don't necessarily agree with that, that provides these, this rubric and metric for what can be an F considered an ethical conflict or war. Um, you recognize that you don't want a conflict to continue endlessly. You don't want a conflict to be extended and brought about uh, for, with no fruits. And really, that's what this this uh, tweet is sort of guilty of of crossing into is this. You know, there 
the the nations that are keeping this going are heroes and it's like no nations that are prolonging this conflict and making it last longer and and preventing a peaceable resolution from happening are they are not heroes by any means and the fact that our contribution of 40 billion or whatever uh has has made it so that zelensky no longer feels that there is a need to work out any peaceable resolution with Russia is a very, very troubling sign because it means we've extended this conflict and we've extended the deaths and the harms and the atrocities that will be committed for it uh, because we have made it, we've made peace a less feasible option. It's, it, it reminds me of, because people will talk about, they'll talk about Ukraine and if you're like, hey, I don't think we should send $40 billion over there, like, if if they don't stoop to the level of calling you a Russian asset or traitor, they will say, well, dude, like, how can you not be sympathetic towards the people over in Ukraine? And it's like, I actually am more sympathetic than you are by my actions and by what I think should be done, right? Like, I, I if I was to, like, liken Ukraine to what, like, a real-world scenario, it's like you and me sitting down at a restaurant, and there's some UFC fighter, you know, the sitting across from us at another table... And I keep looking at the UFC fighter. I'm like, hey, this Donnie guy, he thinks he can kick your butt. Like, and, you know, he, he and keep insulting him. I keep insulting him through the whole dinner. And then eventually the guy gets up. He's like, oh, you know, I've had enough of this. And he comes over and he starts punching you. And you guys get in a fight and you get beat up a little bit. Um, <laughs> I would, that would be crazy. That would be nuts. I'm sorry. I would never do that to you. But let's just say I did. You keep getting beat up. And it's like, it's like, clearly you've lost, right? Like you've lost. Best thing to do would be like, hey, UFC fighter. Hey, Conor McGregor. Donnie are going to leave now. <laughs> like you yeah. can, you won. Good job, dude. Like we're going to leave now, lick our wounds and recover. But I, instead I stood you up and I said, said UFC fighter, he's got plenty more in him. Like he can go all day. It's <laughs> to quote Captain America. I could do this all yeah. day. And uh, stand you up and you just keep getting beat up and beat up and beat up until, you know, eventually you're, you're put in a wheelchair. Because you just didn't know when to quit, or I didn't know when to quit for you. That's essentially what we're doing for Ukraine, and the Ukrainian people, at least. The only difference is, is uh, we make money off of them continuing to fight, which makes it all the more sinister. Um, we just, it, you know, it's like, it's like, man, you know, Ukraine is up against Russia. There was a chance for a ceasefire. S certain little thing, not little, but certain things like, hey, Ukraine is not going to join NATO. Just give them that. Uh, give them that concession, which was never going to happen in the first place, right? We we're never going to let you, Ukraine was never going to join NATO. Just give them that. And then we can avoid all of this needless bloodshed on both sides. We can avoid the 27,000 Russian soldiers dying, all the thousands of Ukrainian citizens and soldiers that are dying. Uh, but instead, you know, we just keep propping it up. And, you know, I think there, I've heard certain people talk about this, like, hey, this war could potentially go on for years at this point, with these people being armed. I mean, Ukraine basically has been put on an even playing field with, with Russia um, in terms of like their, their amount of strength. So there's not an actual good conclusion to it. And that's what's so striking to me about the comparison to World War II and World War I. I guess more World War II, but in World War I, like if we had just let World War I play out, the U.S. never got involved, like we unbalanced that conflict so that a good, actual, fair resolution could come to pass instead we got the treaty of versailles which unbalanced everything right it, it made it so in favor of of britain and france and all these countries and it, and such a disfavor to germany that you know it, it made way for the rise of hitler and world war ii and then again we got involved again in world war ii um and all that um so it's just it's just funny and you know these these war hawks who loved that trump never started new wars salute Ukraine and all the deaths of innocents, which just, it's just weird, man. It's like these people don't, I guess I believe more and more in that NPC meme. You know, they, it's on both sides. It's, it's on the liberal side and it's also on the conservative side. Yeah. And, and I, the, the one thing I would add to is it's like when, you know, when we say that we make money off of it, you know, off the sort of the war profiteering that exists, it's like the, the American people don't by any means. No. The, uh, the government officials and the you know the weapons arms companies do but then they just circulate that within themselves and meanwhile you get taxed to pay for it all so it's pure profit for them and any cost comes out of your own pocket as a taxpayer which you know on the on the on the heels of a uh, or not the heels i should say at the at the the eve of what should be a uh, an upcoming looming 
recession is not exactly the not exactly the the most healthy thing for the American people. It's not even like we're in an un a, an unprecedentedly healthy economy that can sustain this kind of thing. And I think Scott Horton points it out a lot how, you know, if if we were in an economy, or maybe it's Dave Smith, maybe them both. But, you know, if we were living in, an, in a realistic economy where um, we weren't just making up money and printing money and taxing it for future generations, if we actually had to balance what we spend against the reality of production that we have in those things, we wouldn't be able to afford all these wars and we wouldn't be sending $40 billion so willy-nilly. But the fact that the, you know, the government effectively owns the means of, of the you know, creation of money and it's all tied to nothing means that they can just print themselves this money to send and then you end up paying the cost, which is what we're seeing with inflation and I think, again, a looming recession ahead. So, uh, no, um, keeping this conflict going by sending them supplies and hardware is not a heroic thing. It screws the people over there and it screws the people over here, unfortunately. Totally agree. And. All right, that is our show for today. So thank you so much for tuning in and listening. As a reminder, uh, like and share and subscribe this if you've got the chance. It helps us grow, which we love to see. And we will catch you later on the next one.